Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning or good afternoon if you're listening to this in the afternoon. It's happy Sunday to you. Uh, if you're listening with family members or with friends or with the community group, I think it's great that we have the opportunity still to gather online, even though we're not gathering in person this Sunday. But we're going to continue in our Hosea series as we have been going through for the past uh, several weeks. And I think uh, this is a great opportunity for us to still continue to engage Hosea, but also uh, find some words that are comforting and encouraging and uh, and really help direct us during the time that we're facing. And what a week it's been, huh? I can't remember having quite a week like this in the past 15 years of ministry. And of course, as I sat down to put the message together this week, I was torn initially between continuing Hosea or do we just do a message on kind of how do we respond to the coronavirus and the situation we're facing right now? But fortunately, as I began to study the next chapter in Hosea that we were lined up to uh, go through this week, which is chapter 12, I realized that just like in many other places in God's Word, we're going to see some really good direction on how we should respond to our current situation. And that's really one of the great things about God's Word, to be honest. One of the things I love is that we can look at something that was written by written from a, the words of a prophet 3,000 years ago in ancient Israel, and these words are every bit as relevant to us nearly 3,000 years later as we're dealing with the coronavirus of all things, right? And so as we engage with the book of Hosea today and continue our series called The One Thing, which we have said from the beginning that the one thing that we're looking at is the most important of things, God's love, we're going to be talking about how the truth is an aspect of God's love, more specifically that God tells us the truth because he loves us. Now, when it comes to the subject of the topic of truth, I'm sure you've probably noticed this, but our world has a funny relationship with the truth sometimes. And it's not really that we don't value truth or the idea of truth. It's more kind of like everyone seems to have their own truth. And what we're facing right now with the coronavirus is a perfect example of that. I think this week in particular has been a perfect example of the need for actual clear truth. And that when we don't have that truth, it can be unsettling to the point of causing us maybe to panic or even despair. You see that happening in a lot of cases throughout the world. And so when something like this hits, it's like drowning in the sea and people are trying to look for anything they can to grab onto and f that'll, that'll cause them to float and maybe even kind of pull themselves up so that they can see the horizon for hope for land or for hope of whatever it may be to get themselves out of the situation. And so inevitably we grab onto the first thing that looks like it'll float, that looks like, looks like it'll kind of prop us up so that we can see a little further even if it's not the best thing that we should be grabbing onto. And personally, I've been trying to gather as much information on the virus and how we should respond as individuals and as families and as a church. And if you've tried to do this, and even if you haven't, you probably couldn't even avoid it over this past week, but you've seen the reality that everyone seems to have their own truth just about this one thing. Uh, there are some who will say it's nothing to worry about. It's just the flu. It's not even as serious as the flu. And others who will say it's the end of civilization. Right? This is the thing that's going to be the global wipeout, a global outbreak. And everyone seemed to speak with so, no matter you know what people say, everyone seems to speak with so much confidence about it. I mean, we've even heard everything from like China saying that the U.S. military started the virus and gave it to the Chinese people. And uh, other people in the U.S. who are saying, you know, this is a biochemical weapon that North Korea started to attack 
the U.S. I mean, really? There's nothing like a global pandemic, really, to get the conspiracy theorists going. And maybe what those folks don't realize is that statements like those will almost never have no impact. Really, every time something like that is thrown out there, it has an impact because words matter. Claims of truth matter. We all realize that. We, As human beings, we were made to seek truth, to try to understand this world and understand who we are, to understand where we came from, and of course, to understand God. Uh, this week, I was actually reminded a lot of an interesting class that I took when I was in college. It was a class that was on uh, statistics. And uh, when I started the class, I honestly wasn't that excited about it because it sounded like a lot of math and it was a summer class that I had to take and it was like the only summer class and it was in Tucson. And so it was like, you know, 110 degrees every day when I had to walk to this class. But I needed to take it in order to graduate on time, so I did. And I actually ended up learning a lot in that class, specifically how almost any statistic you can use, any statistic you can find can be used to tell any story that you want to tell. And this was the first time I had heard anything like that. And to be honest, I was actually devastated when I realized that fact, that you could take any stat almost and craft it in any way and tell your own story with it. It made me question everything I'd ever known because at the time, even though I didn't really want to take the class, I really did love the subject of statistics. I was and I still am a big baseball fan. And if you know anything about baseball, baseball is a statistics-driven sport. It's all about numbers. And at the time, I was really big into fantasy baseball. And so stats and numbers were a really big deal to me. I mean, I looked at numbers as basically the essence of truth. Because what could be more true than numbers, right? Truth in black and white. It can't be questioned. And the fact that someone could take these quote-unquote infallible numbers and use them to craft a false story was like a betrayal of everything that I thought I knew. And I know that sounds extreme, but that's how I felt. I think maybe the most devastating part about the lesson that I learned through all of that is that what I realized is that it's not only statistics that people can use to craft to tell whatever story they want, but if stats can be used in that way, which seems so black and white, What's more straightforward than numbers and math? If those can be used to say whatever someone wants to say, then almost anything can be used in that way. And it was about 20 years ago that I took that course. And I don't mean to sound like the old guy, if for no other reason that I just don't want to see myself as that guy yet. But it does seem like in the past 20 years, that has become our reality. And I don't know if it's the explosion of social media during that time that has caused this, but I do think it has certainly given this a platform. However, as we've seen in playing with the truth, where truth used to inform what we do, now claims of truth support our own narratives, whatever they might be. Similar to using stats to tell whatever story we want to tell, we use all these truth claims to kind of craft into our own narrative to tell whatever story we want to tell. Which naturally puts us in the place that I think we find ourselves oftentimes where the truth is cloudy. It's unclear and it's kind of determined from person to person. In reality, we've all kind of become gods who invented our own truth. And there are all kinds of claims to truth out there. And the problem is that you can't have six billion truths on the earth. You can't really even have two contrasting truths technically. Because if one thing is true, then by definition, another thing that is in contrast to that true thing, of course, can't also be true. 
Fortunately, even though it may feel like at times overwhelming and confusing, and I think especially during times like what we're facing right now, we don't have to give in to the temptation to despair or to be afraid because God tells us the truth. God tells us the truth because he loves us. He knows what's going on and he sees the cloud of confusion that comes when so many other voices are screaming for our attention and he cuts through that to tell us the truth. And this morning as we continue Hosea 12, we're going to be talking about why telling the truth is such an important act of love from both God and from us as we tell the truth as well. And we're going to be uh, we're going to see how we can recognize and avoid deception then and be people who both speak and live the truth. And we're going to be starting in Hosea chapter 12, well technically in chapter 11. I want to pick up on the last verse in chapter 11, which is going to be verse 12 and I'll begin reading there and then we're going to continue through the entire chapter of chapter 12. All right, so here we go. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 12, it says this. This is God speaking to Israel through the prophet Hosea. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence and make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed, and he wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. And Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram where Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. And by a prophet the land brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Okay, so here again uh, is the prophet Hosea in chapter 12 being the mouthpiece for God as God continues to bring his case against his covenant people of the Old Testament Israel. And we've actually seen this be a big part of the book of Hosea, where God from time to time through Hosea brings a case against Israel, almost like a court case. In fact, you actually see that kind of language in verse 2 here. It says the Lord has an indictment against 
uh, Judah, bringing bringing these accusations about what Israel has done, and then almost kind of like presenting the evidence, if you will. And I think this is a big part of the book of Hosea, but it's also a big part of our takeaway as well. Because as we mentioned earlier, as God's word, not only is God speaking to Israel 3,000 years ago, but there's a lot that God has to say to us today. And I think what we can learn from this chapter in particular, and what's being told to us through God's word, is similar to what God is saying to Israel. These cautions and these directions and these rebukes and these encouragements come to us today. But so this chapter is unique because of all the things that God has called Israel out on so far. We've seen things like unfaithfulness, idolatry, uh, immorality, injustice. He focuses on one thing in this chapter that we haven't really seen addressed specifically to this point in the book. God calls Israel out for their deception and their lies, which is kind of new, but also related to kind of some of the things we've seen underlying Israel's behavior uh, that God has called out so far. But I think this is uniquely important to consider because this is directly called out in this case, this aspect of deception and lying. So let's take a closer look at what's being said here, because the repeated refrain going all the way back into that last a verse in chapter 11, uh, at the end of chapter 11, which is verse 12, God repeats this refrain about deception and deceit, which actually, and the reason I read that last verse and kind of continued through verse 12 is that actually seems to be the headline for then how God uh, goes through chapter 12. It's almost like if you're going to, of course, phrase it as a as a court case type, court argument type, type thing, it's like the opening statement where the lawyer presents what he wants to prove. And then God goes on into chapter 12 by presenting the evidence and using a couple of figures uh, of speech that we might not be familiar with um, there in verse 1, which is that Ephraim kind of shepherds or feeds on the wind, which is almost like a modern day way of saying, uh, or an ancient day way of saying herding cats, if you've heard that expression. it's It points out the foolishness and the pointless nature of doing something like that. And then God goes a step further with this next image of chasing after the east wind, which may not make a lot of sense until we kind of dive into this a little bit. But in this part of the world, the desert areas of the eastern Mediterranean, which of course is where this a whole thing comes from, which Hosea and Israel are situated in. The east wind is notoriously that one that is 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 full of heat and full of kind of almost like an oppressive type of heat. The east wind is the one that comes out of the desert as opposed to the wind that might come out of the Mediterranean Sea. It's the wind that feels so hot that it's almost like it's the feeling you get that feels like uh, opening an, an oven at like 450 degrees. And I think we, we don't need to really use our imagination on this one. If you've lived through an Arizona summer, you have felt that wind. You know exactly what that wind feels like. And when you feel it, did anyone ever want to run into that wind? I mean, do you feel like you want to just like, that feels so great. It's 115 degrees outside. And I just got this smacked with this wind that feels like 300. And I just want to run directly into that. I mean, who does that, right? I mean, you turn away from it. You protect yourself from it. You do anything you can to get out of the way. And God, so God says, how foolish is this of you, Israel, to feel that wind and run directly into it? This is how much you have been deceived. You don't even know which direction you're facing. And when you feel this east wind that's coming, where most people would run away from it, you have run to it and run into it. That's how far your deception has led you. Not only is it foolish, but it's dangerous in what you're doing. You are hurting yourself in doing that. God then claims that Israel is multiplying lies 
and violence in what they're doing, which highlights the results of how deceptive, of how destructive, I should say, their deception has become. You know, Egypt and Assyria were notoriously brutal and violent empires in the ancient world, especially Assyria. And so by Israel joining with them in covenants and agreements and paying them with these resources that came from the land that God had given them, which is the oil that's that's pictured here, um, the oil represents that tribute that they paid as well as their covenant agreement with them. So they had ended up joining then not only just in these political agreements, but it joined also with the actions then of these brutal kingdoms. And God is holding them accountable for that, participating in the violence and the lies of these brutal empires of the ancient world. And even though Israel themselves might not have been kind of going on military, uh, you know, expeditions to conquer people, God says, look, because you have partnered with the deception and the violence of Assyria, because you are in covenant with them and paying tribute to them, using resources from the land that I have given you to enrich their empire, you are by proxy, by connection, causing lies and violence to, to, to propagate throughout the world. And God is holding them accountable to this, as if they were guilty themselves of doing that. And then to drive the point home about their deception, God refers to Israel as Jacob, which is the first time that Israel has been referred to uh, Jacob in this way by Hosea. Because we've seen uh, in the book of Hosea, we've seen them be called Israel. We've seen them, of course, be called Ephraim, which is the capital of the northern kingdom, but not referred to as Jacob. To this point in the book. Now, Jacob's not an uncommon term for Israel in the Bible, but here in this context, there seems to be special meaning to it. It's meant to draw our attention, and that's introduced to us in verses three and four here. These two verses point out the not so flattering aspects of Jacob's life, in that he was known in the biblical story as a heel grabber or a usurper. Another way of saying this is that he was a deceiver. Usurper is also translated as deceiver. Some in, in some cases. And so that's how we he, see kind of the Old Testament narrative of Jacob. Um, and, and the use of Jacob's name here only further adds to the image of Israel then being deceptive and dishonest. Dishonest both in their covenant relationship with God and also contributing to the deceptive practices of the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And in addition to Jacob being known as a deceiver, he was also known as the guy who wrestled and struggled with God. And ironically, that certainly fits the description of Israel with God here as well. Continuing, continually wrestling with God and God wrestling with them. But in the end, uh, if you know Jacob's story, Jacob's story was also a story of God's grace and deliverance. Although Jacob was a deceiver and he wrestled and struggled with God, he was blessed by God. And the nation of Israel was actually named after him. Uh, he was renamed Israel, and then Israel was given its name by through through Jacob. Jacob stole the birthright of his older brother Esau, but then he was also the father of the twelve sons who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. And he struggled with God, but he saw God face to face, and God even identifies himself in a few different places, or I should say Moses at least identifies God as God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Jacob was flawed, but he was also blessed because God was gracious to him. And God, through Hosea, calls Israel to return to him by the same grace in this chapter. 
You know, it's remarkable how Israel's story represents the man they were named after in so many ways. Deceptive in their dealings and constantly wrestling with God, but God's still deciding to bless them and to show them grace. And by his grace, God calls them to return. Return uh, to being people of the truth who will act out of love and justice, which of course are the antidote to deception and injustice and oppression that they had been engaged in. But the struggle for Israel in verse 8, as we look at verse 8 in chapter 12, is that they've become accustomed to the ways of the nations around them. That in such a way that they had seen their they had seen that their deception had brought them some measure of prosperity. To such a degree, really, that they had lost track of the truth in a way that they couldn't see lies in themselves really anymore at all. And this became a danger zone for them, and it's really the nature of deception in general, that as we're deceived, we become deceivers, and before we know it, as we continue to kind of believe lies and then and then spout out lies and live by lies, the lies actually become the truth for us. It's like this kind of visual, vicious cycle of deception. We're deceived, then we kind of believe the deception, so we become deceivers, and then before we know it, the deceptions or the lies have become what we see as the truth. And this is apparently what had happened to Israel. They had invented their own truth, which was really a lie. You see in verse 8, they say, Oh, but I am rich. I've found wealth for myself. And as a result, in my labors, they cannot find, in, in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. In other words, even though it's obvious that what they're doing is engaging in oppression, as God says in verse 7, they can't see any iniquity or sin in themselves because they've been so deceived. And really, there's no worse place than that. Being deceived and not knowing that you're being deceived. In fact, calling it living by truth. Now, God knows that Israel is self-deceived. And it's only in something drastic that is going to shake them up. So he tells them, just like you were in the wilderness when I saved you, you will return to the wilderness. A representation of them being disciplined and humbled to wake them up. And God says, essentially, if this is what it takes, it would be better for me to take you all the way back to the beginning and start again in Egypt, if that would wake you up from your deception. And again, the story of Jacob returns in the last part of the chapter to reinforce this point where Jacob was humbled and humiliated by being deceived himself into working for Leah when he wanted to marry Rachel, which was a measure kind of a biblical poetic justice, Israel would experience humiliation as well, this time through the exile that was coming. And this would all be at the hand of the Lord, his personal discipline to humble them and to wake them up. Okay, so as we get to the end of chapter 12 here in Hosea, I think it's worth asking the question again, why all this emphasis on deception and truth-telling here? I mean, we all know that lying is wrong, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments, and for even, the, even for those who have never read the Bible before, have kind of any religious belief, realize that lying is wrong. At least they probably teach that to their kids. Uh, I have a few friends who I know that are not Christians and they've never, they're not really familiar with the Bible at all. And yet they would teach their kids that lying is wrong. And yet the question is why? Why is lying wrong? Well, we would say because God says so, yes. But why does God say so? I think we don't just tell the truth because lying is bad morally. We tell the truth because we believe that lies do real damage to the world around us and that words matter and words have impact. 
I mean, if the existence of the Bible tells us anything, it's that words matter because that is how God has chosen to communicate to us through his word primarily. And it's even how he created the world around us by speaking words. I mean, I don't think there's any any greater testament to the power of words than that when God spoke, he spoke everything into creation. So in a culture that we live in where so many words are wasted all the time or even used as tools to harm and manipulate, we as Christians are told to be wise with what we say and to tell the truth because it impacts the world around us. We realize the power of words. Because once a lie is spoken, it goes out into the world and causes untold damage that we don't really have control over. It reminds me of a movie that came out uh, several years ago at this point, um, a movie called Doubt. And it was a movie with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Meryl Streep in it. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a priest and Meryl Streep is a nun. And uh, they have this issue going on with gossip. And so in one of the sermons in the movie, he stands up, the priest... uh, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, stands up and tells a story about gossip. And I think it's a great it's a great story that relates to kind of how lies go out as well. But he tells a story about a woman who uh, starts gossiping about a man she doesn't know. And she goes to sleep and has a dream and has this dream about this hand kind of coming on her. And she feels this overwhelming sense of guilt. So she goes to the priest the next day to confess. And she confesses that she's gossiped and, and all these other things. And, uh, and she asks for forgiveness. And the priest says, not so fast. What I want you to do is I want you, when you get home, to take a pillow from your bed, grab a knife, go up on the roof of your building, and cut that pillow open. And once you've done that, come back to me. So that night, the woman goes home, takes a pillow, goes and cuts open a pillow, stands on the uh, roof of her building, And the feathers go everywhere. And so she goes back to the priest the next day and says, I've done what you've asked me to do. And the priest says to her, okay, now what I want you to do then is to go gather up every single feather that blew out into the wind and put them back in the pillow. And she says to him, well, that's impossible. I don't know where those feathers went. They went all over the place and they were carried out into the wind. And the priest says, exactly, that is gossip. And even though this is an example about gossip, it is also, I believe, a great example about lies. That even the white lies that we tell that we don't believe are going to hurt anyone, we have no control over how those things might hurt someone and where that feather might land. And once that lie is spoken, once we put that deception out there, we have no control of where the wind might take that, so to speak, take that feather and where that feather might land. So we know that the truth is good and that lies and deception are wrong. I think we all know that on some level, that when we say things like that, there's been many times in our lives, probably even maybe even this past week that we can think about and say, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have, you know, kind of crafted it in that way because it was a little bit deceptive and immediately we realized that. But the question is, why do we still end up lying and deceiving? Well, I think one of the places we can diagnose that, diagnoses our problem well is in Romans chapter 1. Verses 18 through 25 speak to that aspect of deception and lies and kind of really how this whole thing takes root in us. 
Uh, this is this is what I see as almost the epitome of people inventing their own truth, and Paul diagnoses it here uh, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which I'm going to read for you now. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. So I want us to see a few things here, because I think Paul gives us kind of this progression of how deception takes root in all of our lives. First of all, he says that those by their unrighteousness, they hinder or suppress or hold back the truth. So the first step that typically happens is that we hinder the movement of truth going forward, that God reveals himself to us, that every person has a sense of this understanding that I was created by somebody greater than myself and whether they realize exactly who that is or not, there's a sense to where at least I know that I am not God. Yet the first step is actually, the first step towards deception is holding back that truth that they may realize in their heart. And this is a deliberate action then, pretty clearly stated here, that, that a person takes to reject or to suppress that truth that may be in them as a created being in God's image. And then secondly, as a result of holding back that truth or suspending or suppressing that truth, Secondly, they don't honor God as the source of truth. So the source of the so if you don't have a source for truth, then that person doesn't recognize then God as the authoritative truth teller. Either they don't believe in God or they don't ultimately believe that God's truth has authority in their lives. And so then as a result, the third step is that they make up their own truth. Since we all need some kind of truth as human beings, as we talked about before, and if we don't believe God gives that to us, we have to then either make up our own truth or we latch on to somebody else's truth. And typically what happens kind of more recently in our, in our context is that people tend to make up their own truths. They borrow a bunch of different things and kind of put it all together, mix it up, and then it becomes their own truth. So then as a result, they end up exchanging truth for a lie. The ultimate result is falling into what just what Israel had fallen into in Hosea chapter 12. The cycle of deception. People who are deceived then become deceivers until the lie begins to look like the truth to them. And this is important because I don't think anyone says to themselves, I believe lies, right? If you were to ask them what they believe, they would, you know, they would say, well, I believe lies, right? No, nobody thinks that, right? Instead, people are deceived into thinking that a lie is a truth and they exchange the truth for a lie and they believe the thing that they are believing is actually true when in fact, it's actually a lie. And then five, if you read the rest of, of chapter uh, one in the book of Romans, the passage immediately following it, the context before and after Things get really bad. 
showing us again that truth and lies have consequences and really consequences that we can't anticipate because again, just like the feathers that go out of the pillow, they begin to take on a life of their own. So then the question is, how do we live in the truth? If that's how we end up in these cycles of deception, how do we make sure we're living in the truth? Well, you may remember that Jesus said, I am the truth and my words are true. So Jesus is saying on the one hand, both that he is the embodiment of the truth, the reality of God and everything that he tells us is true. So then when Jesus says the truth will set you free, I actually interpret this to mean that Jesus is the truth who by what he has done, by his saving work, will set us free, has set us free, but also that his words will set us free from cycles of deception and from lies that we gather up in the world. God's words and his person are true. They are inseparable. So when Jesus says, uh, I am the truth and the truth will set you free, he says, I will set you free. I will save you, but I will also point out what is actually true by my words. So truth is love and telling the truth is love because it brings true freedom. That's what Jesus is saying. Like the truth will make will set you free. And I'm giving you the opportunity to be free. Not only my loving action on your behalf, but also with, as Romans 12 would say, a renewed mind that tells you the truth by my spirit. Paul Tripp des- describes really well, I think, how love and truth are linked together. He says, look, truth and love are inextricably bound together. Love that compromises truth simply isn't love. Truth without love ceases to be truth because it gets bent and twisted by other human agendas. In other words, we exchange the truth for a lie. Then he continues and says, If love wants and works what is best for you, then love is committed to being part of what God says is best in your life. Another word for what God says is best in your life is the word freedom. God gives us freedom because he loves us and the truth is the way to be free. This is why Jesus says the truth will set you free. It's a loving action on the part of Jesus. And so to close, to finish this morning, I want to give you a few ways that truth is loving because it frees us. And these are just a few. There's probably more than this, but I think these are a few good ones to think about. First of all, truth humbles us. You know, one of the first things that we realize when it comes to truth, and this happens as we look at Romans chapter 1, for example, is that we come face to faith with with whether or not to accept God's truth or to suppress it. Accepting God's truth, though, forces us to be humble because we have to submit, quote unquote, our own truth to God's truth. And practically, this temptation happens every time we come to the Bible. I mean, this is Biblical Interpretation 101. When we come to read God's Word, we are always coming with our own presuppositions, which is a big word that just means kind of like our own perception, our own truth, if we will. And sometimes and many times those perceptions are good and they're biblical and they're right, especially if your perception is informed by the Bible. But sometimes they aren't. Uh, In any event, we need to always be willing to find God's truth as the thing that is authoritative in our lives, and then to humbly submit our own truth when it conflicts. And I think that's a lot more difficult to do sometimes than we give it credit for. We can sometimes come to God's word with our own agenda and not even realize that we have our own agenda 
and then read God's word and just feel like God's word just reinforces our agenda. And so that's a temptation we face. The truth humbles us. We have to always be willing to say, God, your word is authoritative in my life. If I find something that can conflicts with the way that I'm living and the way that I'm believing, I have to submit to that. So truth humbles us. Secondly, truth brings clarity. You know, part of what we experience, and we've talked about this a little bit already, when everyone makes up their own truth, is that nothing seems to be true in the end. Instead, we kind of have this fog of all kinds of different opinions and perspectives that are swirling around us at all times. I think that's a good way to describe what's been happening in our world. There's like this fog of information, and we're not really sure. We can't see uh, in the end, what what exactly is true? Where we get so lost in this thick fog that, in some ways, we're not sure which way is north, which way is south, what direction we're facing, so to speak. And you get such in the middle of the thick fog that you can't even see which direction you're going and which way to move. So you almost get paralyzed by it. But truth is like the light when the sun burns through the fog, and you can start to see the direction you're facing. Truth is also like the hand that kind of reaches through the fog and drags you out of it sometimes to bring you to a place of clarity. Because when you can see where you're going, you can see the direction, it brings clarity to the situation. So truth humbles us. Truth also brings clarity. Truth also gives us peace. Anyone go to the grocery store this weekend? Or have you seen pictures of empty shelves of toilet paper and water at Costco dating back like two weeks even? I mean, people are unsettled right now. There is not a lot of peace around in our world right now. And when there is no peace, people tend to gravitate towards what they believe will give them peace. And and what do we love in America? What do we believe often will give us at least a sense of some feeling of happiness or security? Stuff and supplies. We believe things will make us. We believe things will make us safe, and so, uh, and so, and so as a result, people buy a bunch of toilet paper and water, because I believe that. Because I guess they believe that if they buy enough toilet paper, it'll make them happy and give them enough peace and security. I, I guess. I never thought I'd say that in a sermon, but here we are. We may laugh at that because it's funny, but we laugh because if we believe the truth that we don't seek our security in toilet paper or just in holding stuff in general, it sets us free from having to believe the lies and deceptions that I will gain this world yet forfeit my soul. So truth humbles us. Truth brings clarity. Truth gives us peace. Truth also gives us hope. Uh, Have you ever felt hopeless? It's okay to admit it. Even if you're a Christian, it's okay to admit at times you feel hopeless. I've had feelings of hopelessness. And I know that every time I have, though, I've realized that I am hopeless. I feel hopeless because the substance of my hope has become empty. In other words, what I was staking the hope of my happiness in blew up in my face and left me in despair. And whether that was, you know, placing my hope in my performance at work or my reputation or even my marriage or my family life or even something as trivial as like one of my sports teams winning a game, which I've done before, I realize that little hopes all the time get dashed. And each time they do, I realize that I was not believing the truth. I had exchanged the truth for a lie, that that thing that I was placing my hope in would make me content, would give me hope. The truth of Jesus sets us free from placing ultimate hope in the things that will inevitably disappoint us, even if that hope is a perfect marriage or being a perfect parent, because ultimately we'll come to the realization that those things 
are not possible and they weren't meant to bear the weight of our contentment and true hope anyway. Instead, truth sets us free to give us real hope, hope that can bear the weight of true human hopes and desires that we were made to enjoy by our Creator and made to be fulfilled by our Creator as well. And so finally, truth can hurt, but truth wounds like a friend. This is why truth is loving in the end. No one likes to be humbled. That can be a painful process. It's humbling to realize that we're wrong. It's humbling to realize that we've put our hopes and so much angst and so much effort and so much emotion into something that in the end wasn't meant to bear that. But truth, when it wounds, it wounds like a friend. It wounds for our own good. It cuts to those things that need to be woken up and the healing that comes from it brings us to a better place uh, in place of that wound. And God, God tells Israel in Hosea chapter 12, again, that it's better that we just scrap this whole thing. We can scrap the land, the nation, everything that I've given you. And we'll take you all the way back to Egypt and rescue you again, if that's what it takes. Even with all the suffering that that would entail, all of that is worth it if it wakes you up from the lies that you are living out. Now look, don't be surprised if God does the same thing to you and me sometimes. Takes us through the wilderness to wake us up to the truth. And here's the thing, and all that, as, as difficult as that might be, in the end, that would be a blessing. We should be praying for that thing because what we end up with in the end is that although truth can hurt, although truth wounds, the healing of that truth gives us the promise that sets us free. Now, in light of these things that we've discussed today, I hope it's obvious that telling the truth is more than just not lying or just not being deceptive. Telling the truth is about speaking and living the truth of Jesus among a bunch of other claims of truth and realities that we face. I think we all realize that we are uh, just on the front end of the effects of this coronavirus uh, outbreak and this coronavirus, in some ways, this hysteria and concern. And I'm not just talking about the physical toll that it will take on a lot of us, but also the emotional and spiritual toll that this is going to take on people. Um, it's unavoidable. I don't think we should look at people who are experiencing fear and hysteria and be like, you know, just wake up, stop being afraid. I think we should look at them with sympathy. I think we should look at them with love and understand that the reason that people are freaking out is because they're just drowning in the sea looking for something to grab onto. And look, we believe in a God who brings life out of death. And if he can bring back the dead and redeem creation, he can certainly redeem this situation. He can certainly bring hope and truth to your neighbor who is just freaking out, having to buy every last roll of toilet paper because that gives them some kind of balm or some kind of hope or relief to their, uh, to their uh, uh, fear and their anxiety. And so don't waste the opportunities that you will have all around you to be a truth bringer and a truth teller in this unique climate. There's going to be bad news all around us. It's already here and some of it will only get worse. Now, some of it, maybe much of it is true in the sense that it's not necessarily a lie. However, it's not the ultimate truth in the sense of what is eternally true. The news can report on what's happening uh, the news can report, the media can report on how things are developing in our world around us. But in the end, it's God's word that gives us 
the ultimate truth in the sense of what is eternally true. And the temporary nature of this life is something that we are reminded of over and over again in the scriptures. So even though we look at a world that is broken and susceptible to disease and death, we need to be reminded, especially during these times, that the truth is, is that this is not the end and that there is hope beyond our circumstances. The truth is that when things around us are spinning into chaos, God is in control. That when we feel alone and gripped by fear, that the God who loves us is with us. That when everything seems to be dying and breaking down, God is working to redeem all things and make them whole. That when death seems like our end, God promises that eternal life is our end. And that we, when we can see nothing but today's troubles in front of us, our God is the one who declares the end from the beginning, and he has promised good for us in the end. Our challenge then, as Christ followers, is how to tell the truth about these things, not just by what we say, but by how we live and how we love our neighbor. And let's pray that we would be the people who live the truth and tell the truth, because we are people who believe that telling the truth is the very best way to love our neighbor. So let's pray. Father, I ask uh, this morning that we would have hearts and minds that would receive your word as truth. We read a place like Romans chapter 1. I think we are all susceptible to be people who suppress the truth in some way and kind of want to tell our own story and, and, and hold on to our own truth because it is, if we're honest, it is painful to admit that we might be wrong or to admit that every time we come to your word, we need to be humbled and that our minds need to be renewed. But Father, we ask that you would do the faithful and loving thing by your Spirit in us to renew our minds each time we come to, our, to your word, um, and that our hearts would be ready to be humbled by what you have to say to us. And, and that starts with us trusting you and trusting, Father, that you are good and that what you say to us is good and that your words are true. I think about Peter for example, uh, when Jesus looks at his disciples and says to them after the, after, after the crowds have left him because he said some words that are difficult for them to understand. And um, he looks at his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Your words may be difficult at times for us to understand and accept, Lord, but in the end we believe that your words are the words of eternal life. And I think that's especially true for us as we engage with what the situation that we're facing, Lord. Uh, as big as this thing is for us right now, when we realize that in the large scheme of things, you see it, you're in control, and um, it is a thing you're concerned about, I believe, Lord, but it is a small thing for you. It is a small thing for, uh, for you to, to bring us through. It does not overwhelm, in the sense that it does not overwhelm you. Or you're not taken off guard by it. And so, Father, would you help us to have the same kind of hope and peace that we need to be able to, to love people well through this? I pray that you would show us and you would impress upon us the faith to be able to, to love people um, in the various places that we find ourselves in over the next weeks and months. Give us the creativity, the gospel creativity that we need to proclaim the good news in all that we say and do. 
And in the end, Lord, may you glorify yourself and glorify your son, Jesus, through all of this. In a, in a bad situation where people are hearing bad news everywhere, may the good news of the gospel break through to be the thing that we needed all along. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.